Last week we began a study on the little book of Haggai. If you were not here, the title of that lesson was Putting First Things First. I want to start by doing a really quick review to set the context for our study this morning. If you remember, Haggai comes before some of the people of Judah with a problem. Last week we looked at that problem. We looked at the result of the problem and the solution to the problem. If you remember, the people of Judah had returned from Babylonian captivity under the direction of King Cyrus to their own land with instructions to rebuild the temple. They had begun the work, but because of a lot of opposition between the the Samaritans and others, they stopped their work. That was the problem. They quit doing what the Lord had commanded them to do. And then over the next several years, they went about the business of building their own houses and building their own lives and basically seeking what they desired versus doing what the Lord had commanded them. That was the problem, disobedience. But there was a result of their disobedience. According to Haggai, the Lord came and brought some discipline to them because of their disobedience. I want to read verses 6 through 9 again of chapter 1, just to refresh our memories. Chapter 1, verse 6 of Haggai says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into bags with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. The problem Haggai is addressing is their disobedience to complete the work that God has for them. But then there is a result of that disobedience. They had been making excuses and procrastinating. And Haggai appeared on the scene. We looked at it last week with a rebuke from God. And he tells them that God's hand was against them because of their disobedience. He caused famine. He caused drought. And that was his way of disciplining them to try to bring them back to himself. And then the solution to the problem we saw last week was that They listened to Haggai. They heard the word. They heard the rebuke. They listened. They obeyed. They turned and went to work rebuilding the temple. So that's what we looked at last week and we talked about and drew some application from that to our own lives as we also struggle sometimes with putting first things first and with keeping God at the center of of our lives and hence the first place. I'm not sure in my introduction last week if I told you or not, but the main message of Haggai centers primarily around four proclamations that Haggai makes from the Lord. Technically, there were five proclamations. One of them was, is just a short sentence in verse 13, which was included in what we looked at last week. But that's what we're centering my messages around, are these four primary proclamations. We looked at the first one last week. Today, we're going to see the second one that begins in chapter 2. You could say the first proclamation was a word of rebuke. The second proclamation that we're going to look at this morning is in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, and it's a word of encouragement. And I think this is a timely message because I know 
for a fact that there are many people, including Christians, who struggle with discouragement and depression. And this is going to directly apply to us as we think about that. And God gives a word of encouragement. So in our text this morning, we're going to see why people of Judah were discouraged. And then we're going to see how the Lord encourages them. In doing so, we're going to apply this to our own lives. So let's begin by reading this whole section, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The Word of God says, In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So we ended last week, chapter 1, verse 15 tells us that the work began in the sixth month on the 24th day. And then in chapter 2, Haggai begins by bringing another message on the 21st day of the seventh month, just a little shy of a month later. It appears by the message that Haggai brings to them that the people are discouraged. So we have to ask the question, why are they discouraged? Verse 3 gives us a specific reason. Verse 3 says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Why were they discouraged? Well, evidently there's something going on, and we'll look at that verse in a minute, but it appears that they're making a comparison between Solomon's temple that was the one that was destroyed and this temple, and there's a disparity between them, and they're discouraged by that disparity. But before we elaborate that, I want to bring up something else that I learned as I was studying this. Sometimes when we get depressed or discouraged, there's an obvious reason that when somebody asked us why we were discouraged or depressed, we would say this is the reason. But many times there's things underneath the surface bubbling that are causing discouragement that we don't even always acknowledge or contribute it to. And I think some of that is happening here. Let me explain. If you go back and look at the date that Haggai brings this message to them. When was the message of the Lord given to the people by Haggai? According to Haggai himself, it says it was on the 21st day of the seventh month. Does that mean anything to you? (laughs) Doesn't mean anything to me at first either. But I'm not Jewish, and that date doesn't mean anything to me. But if somebody was telling you a story and they said on December 24th, you would know that that was Christmas Eve. Or if they had said another day, you know, it might be something on our calendar that would make us think about that or put it into context. And there's something going on here that wasn't significant when I first read it, but that I learned. Turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, I'm going to read a portion of Scripture beginning in verse 33 that's going to give us some insight to this date. 
Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 33, says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you have given to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statue forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And when we read that, we see a very precise description of a feast and a festival that the Jewish people were supposed to be celebrating. The 21st day of the seventh month that Haggai is speaking on tells us that this day falls on the last day of this particular feast. And another name for it was the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. It would start on the 15th day and last seven days, which would make the day that Haggai is speaking one of the last days of this feast. It required that the people would travel to Jerusalem, that they would go to the temple, that they would worship, offer sacrifices, they would make booths to live in for the week to remind them of their deliverance from Egypt. It was also known, if you continue to study that, it's also known as the Feast of Ingathering because it was the time of the harvest. So they would also simultaneously be celebrating the harvest. So in prosperous times, this feast was a huge celebration. Trumpets played, reading from the law, prayers were being offered. It was a really big deal, and it centered around the temple. But think about this. What did we learn about the harvest from last week, last Sunday? If you remember, it was puny. God had brought drought and famine, and so really... You think their heart was really in celebrating the harvest? Probably not. Things are really not that good. Life is tough. The harvest was skimpy. They were supposed to be celebrating. This is the underlying tone of the people. This must have been weighing on them. This probably adds to the situation that we read about in verse 3. Verse 3 gives us the obvious and the specific reason that they are discouraged, but I think there were underlying circumstances that played into this and made it worse. Go back to verse 3 again. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Does it seem to you like nothing in comparison? So we learn that they are in the last days of the feast. Not only were the people who were working on the temple there, but probably people who were all around had come because of the feast. And evidently there were some old-timers there. And these old-timers were probably around when Solomon's temple, before it was destroyed, some scholars believe that Haggai was probably a small child at that time himself, and he had seen the temple. He was probably around 80 years old at this time. 
So, if you know anything about Solomon's temple from Scripture, you know it was spectacular. We don't have time, but if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 5, you can read about it. It tells how he built it out of stone carved in the quarry, how he lined it with cedar on the walls and ceilings, how he had workers make these massive wooden doors out of olive wood, and how he had carvings of palm trees and flowers in the wood. talks about how he overlaid it with gold and jewels. It was a beautiful temple. And from all indications, the one they're building now is kind of plain and kind of ordinary in comparison to Solomon's temple. The old men were probably murmuring and grumbling things like, yeah, what you're all doing is you know, not going to compare to the old temple. It's probably you know, way, way plainer. It's, just, it's not going to be anything like it. They were reminiscing about what we would say were the good old days. Do you ever think about the good old days? How often do we like to reminisce? If truth be told, the good old days weren't really as, probably as good as we tend to think they were. But they were comparing this temple to Solomon's gold-ridden temple, and they were stirring everyone up, and it was upsetting them. No wonder they were discouraged. The harvest was puny, the skimpy, the holiday, the feast wasn't that special, and they were pouring their lives into this work and people were complaining about it and comparing it to the other temple. I thought about, you know, when, when you do something and you're striving and working hard and all anybody has is a negative word to say about it, how discouraging that can be. This is the scene that Haggai enters into with another message from the Lord. Last time he had a message of rebuke. This time he comes with a message of encouragement. So, Before I go on, let me ask a question. Have you ever been discouraged or depressed? Anybody not ever been discouraged or depressed? Don't raise your hand. We don't want to see anybody that's perfect. (laughs) Life is hard. You know, when you think about the foes of the Christian life, there's three primary foes of the Christian life. What are they? The world, flesh, and the devil. You think about that. Satan is very powerful. He will use everything in his power to get you to take your thoughts and your service away from God. He wants to destroy us. The world system that Satan is in charge of is set against us. It's so powerful that if you allow it, it can suck you into its belief system and get you to compromise everything you stand for. And if that's not enough, we battle every day with our own sin, with our own flesh. All three of these enemies have the ability to cause discouragement. It's no wonder that many Christians at times are discouraged and depressed. In our context today, though, we're looking specifically at spiritual discouragement. These people were discouraged spiritually. I think we can draw a lot of help for our times of discouragement from this passage, spiritual or otherwise, though, because, in fact, I would propose that all discouragement and disappointment And depression is somewhat spiritual because as a Christian, we can't really separate our spiritual lives from our secular lives. It's all interrelated. In this passage, the Lord through Haggai gives us two admonitions for defeating discouragement. And he provides additional help by appealing to them to have the proper perspective of their past, a proper perspective of their present, and a proper perspective of their future. First thing we'll see then is the first admonition in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. So what do you think the first admonition is? Be strong. The first thing Haggai says to help them overcome discouragement is be strong. He didn't tell them to take a break, go on a vacation, get some rest, go to the doctor, get some pills. You know, as a side bit, I think our culture, we try to solve everything by getting a pill. Now, you know, I'm not speaking against medicine. As Joe said, his mom's on lots of medicine. My wife is on heart medicine. Many of you are on medicine. I'm not speaking against medicine. But sometimes in our society, we tend to solve every problem and treat symptoms with medicine. And I'm specifically thinking in the psychological arena mostly, where medicine is prescribed to treat symptoms and doesn't treat the problem. Again, don't misquote me. I'm not speaking against medicine. I do believe in rare cases that many times depression may be neurological. It might have a medical reason. But many times, especially since I've been involved in biblical counseling, I see that it is very much over-prescribed. Sometimes we treat sadness with medicine or circumstances with medicine. And it's not always necessary. Enough of that. Back to Haggai. Haggai first tells them to be strong. Other versions say be courageous. Be strong. Be courageous. This life is not for the faint-hearted. Life is tough. Ministry is tough. To be successful, one needs to be strong. A couple of months ago, I received an email update from one of our family missionaries. Many of you probably got it too from Paul and Karen Davis. You all remember getting a, a letter from them a couple of weeks ago. And, and it, the tone of the letter was obvious that they were discouraged. A series of setbacks and difficulties had discouraged them. Life on the mission field is not easy. I remember hearing Mike Schott talk back one time about being discouraged and it was actually after he had been pistol whipped in Nigeria. I remember praying for a missionary relative of a member here at Lakeside who had been falsely accused of sexual abuse in the role as a teacher and they were very discouraged at the time. In each of these cases, these servants were strong and they pushed on. They continued to fight. And the Lord eventually encouraged them and they are faithfully continuing to serve today. And they are not unique. Anyone serving the Lord is going to have times of discouragement. And the first thing the Lord says is be strong. Be courageous. Don't shrink back. Don't quit. That's what the people of Judah did last time, if you remember. Around 18 years or so ago, when they began rebuilding the temple and the Samaritans came with their opposition, what did they do? They quit. They gave up. They rationalized it away and said it's not the Lord's time, and they just ended up quitting. That's why Haggai came with the message that he did that we looked at last week. But they heard him, and they were convicted, and so they listened and obeyed, and they began to rebuild the temple again. But that's only been a couple of weeks ago since they started, and they're already being discouraged, and they're on the verge of quitting again. And the Lord tells them to be strong. He doesn't give them a magic fix. He begins by telling them to be strong, be courageous. I think that speaks to us. If there's times in our life where we're discouraged, if we're depressed, the first thing God said to us is be strong. Be courageous. Don't quit. Don't give in. Continue to fight. That's the first admonition. 
What's the next word in your versions after this? After he tells them to be strong, what does he tell them to do? Work. Be strong. And then it says work. End of verse 4. Get to work. Get back to work. Press on. Be strong and get back to work. I know you're discouraged. Be strong and get back to work. I know these people are complaining and making you feel that your work's not important. Get back to work. I know you're discouraged. Your circumstances are not the best. Your harvest is puny. Your fields are bare. You're up here working and people don't appreciate it. Be strong. Get back to work. One of the things that I find helpful for people who are depressed or discouraged is for them to not sit around dwelling on it. It's to get busy working. Not just busy work, but doing the work that God has prepared for you to do. He didn't say get to work on anything. He said get to work on what God has commanded you to do. Do you know that God has a work for all of us to do? You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing, but as gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's an amazing statement. God, He not only expects us to work, He has prepared in eternity past the work that we shall be doing. I'm not specifically talking about your career or job, but that might be included in this statement. But I think in context, it means the purpose of your life as you walk through it with God, doing everything that God has prepared for you to do. What part of us does discouragement and depression attack? Does it attack our hearts, our muscles? It's up here, isn't it? It's in our thoughts, in our attitudes. One of the things that working does is it helps occupy your mind so this discouragement doesn't take root and grow. And again, I suggest that not just working, but serving, working in service to God. You can do that in ministry or you can do that in secular work because everything we do, we do unto the Lord. So the Lord's remedy for discouragement is first to be strong, and second, it's to get to work. So are you discouraged? Are you depressed? Are you down the dumps? First things you need to do is to fight, to be strong, to be courageous, and to get to work, doing what the Lord has for you to do. But after giving us these two admonitions to overcome discouragement, after telling them to be strong, telling them to get to work, then he continues to encourage them by appealing to them to have a proper perspective of their past, a proper perspective of their present, and a proper perspective of their future. And we've already talked about how reflecting on the past was one of the reasons that they were actually discouraged in the first place. They were reflecting on the past, on the greatness of Solomon's temple compared to this one, and they were dwelling on that. But what they were not thinking about was why the temple was destroyed in the first place. Why was it destroyed in the first place? Their disobedience. They were remembering the past, but they had an improper perspective of their past. And don't we sometimes do that? How many times do we dwell on the person who's wronged us or the person who's cheated us instead of remembering the people that's helped us? Sometimes we focus on negative things that happen to us or maybe a few circumstances and we won't let it go instead of focusing on the positive side of that past. That's why 
I see this as being an improper perspective of the past. I think that's why Haggai reminds them of their past in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. In the end of verse 4, he tells them to work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now verse 5, according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Their discouragement is caused by looking back and comparing the old temple to this one. Then why does Haggai remind them again of something else in the past? I think he's reminding them of something in the past to show them that their perspective is wrong. He's saying that you should be remembering the things like how you were delivered from Egypt. Their perspective of the past was selective. They have a rich history as a people. You know that all their lives that they've heard the story of how Moses led them out of Egypt and how Pharaoh's army was behind them as they came upon the sea and how they sat in suspense as their fathers and their grandfathers tell them the story about the sea parting and them going through the midst of the sea and they get to the other side and the armies are in pursuit and the walls of water cave in on them and destroy the armies. You know they've heard all these stories. Haggai talks about the covenant that was made with them at this time. At the end of verse 5, he reminds them that his spirit is with them. He says, my spirit remains with you. Do not fear. This is a very similar statement that God made to the people as they were about to go into the promised land. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses had just told them that he would not be going over to the Jordan with them, but he said to them, Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you. And Joshua will go over at your head. And a little later he said, Be strong, be courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He's reminding them through Haggai that if God was with you in the wilderness, don't you think He'll be with you here as you build this temple? What difference does it make how beautiful it is or how well it is furnished? What is important is that God's presence is here. Of course, this statement is a precursor to the new covenant where God says He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? He said, but the hour is coming now here when the true worship will worship in what? Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. And God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So by looking back, they should have focused on God's presence, not Solomon's temple. They were looking back, but they were reflecting on the wrong things. The right perspective of the past would have reminded them that God is with them and would have encouraged them to move forward, to press on. Don't worry about what the people are saying. He's telling the Jewish people that it doesn't matter how beautifully adorned the temple is, that what is important is that God's presence is with them. Their obedience and devotion is what pleases Him, not how beautiful the temple is. Do you think that's a message we need to hear today? I think so. I think that we should be encouraged when we are discouraged or depressed knowing how God has worked in our past. That should encourage us to move forward. Actually, I don't think we should spend a lot of time looking backwards in most cases. I think most of the time we should have the attitude of Apostle Paul. Remember what he said in Philippians 3.13? He said, Brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing do I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I think we need to do most of the time. But when we do look back, 
We need to look back with a biblical perspective, a godly perspective. We need to have the right perspective, not a self-centered perspective that looks through worldly eyes. So something else we can learn from this passage is in this section here is that sometimes because of this wrong perspective, we fall into the trap of playing the comparison game. Do we do that occasionally? Do we look at other people and what's going on in their lives? And have you ever... I know I'm guilty of it. I know when we were having difficulty with our children, I would look sometimes at other people and think, wow, I wish my kids could be like theirs. Do we ever do that? Do you think, uh, you know, the circ- my circumstances can compare it to someone else's? We should never do that. It's wrong. One is because we don't really know what that other person's going through or been through. For one thing, we see what people want us to see. We don't always see accurately when we're playing comparison games. But also, more importantly, when we do that, we're saying to a sovereign God that I don't like what you have for me. I would do it different than you. I was tempting to think of an example as I close out of it, looking back at the past with the wrong perspective. And I thought of several examples I could share. Some involved other people, but I decided that I should just keep it simple and keep it to my life. I thought about the period of my life about 10 years ago when I had cancer. It was really hard in a lot of ways. It was difficult for me physically. The chemo treatments affected me really hard. I was really sick. I was in the hospital two or three times. It was difficult from a career standpoint as I wasn't able to work. It was difficult emotionally as I dealt with financial concerns and not being able to do things. It was difficult for Terry, I'm sure, as she was working and caring for me. I could look back on that time and very easily think about a lot of negative things if I wanted to. But I would be looking at it through worldly, fleshly lenses if I did that. The proper perspective would be for me to look back on that experience and see the hand of God at work how He gave me grace to go through that with complete peace, how He used others to meet needs, how He provided financially, how He changed and refocused my priorities, how He used it to direct me into ministry. As I was meditating on that, something occurred to me, and I went back because all my lessons are on the computer and dated, so I went back and looked at all the different Sunday school lessons that I had Put together, and I found out something I hadn't really thought about much before. Before I had cancer, I had the opportunity to teach a, teach a few times in Joe's class, but not very much. There was a specific lesson that was dated in 2011. The title of the message was, Why Does God Bring Trials into Our Life? That was a message directly resulting from my recent experience, which I had gone through the, in 2010, and I just finished the treatments and toward the end of the year. It was after this that all of a sudden I started teaching on a more regular basis. God opened the door wider and created more opportunity. And then before long, I was substituting in three different classes. That was a window of opportunity that the Lord used because of the things I had gone through. It wasn't too long after that that I became involved in the biblical counseling ministry, which is the result of the combination, I think, of the serious illness experience along with what we went through with the wayward child. But looking back with that perspective, seeing the God's hand at work is the right perspective of looking at the past. All of us need to be careful not to look back at what we've gone through with negative, unbiblical eyes, but with a proper perspective. 
And the people of Judah needed a proper perspective of the past. They needed to be looking at their past through the lens of God and Scripture, not their worldly lenses. And we do as well. So then we turn to the proper perspective of the present. In verse 5, the Lord reminds them of their escape from bondage in Egypt. But within this verse, He doesn't just appeal to their past. He also appeals for them to have a proper perspective of the present. The end of verse 5 that we just read is a continuation of the statement from verse 4. Go back and look at verse 4. It told them to be strong. Why? For I am with you, says the Lord Almighty. If you look at this section of Scripture closely, you're going to see that Haggai uses a specific name for God six times in this verse. It's translated Lord Almighty. Lord in all caps. In most Bibles, the word Lord will be capitalized, not just the first letter, but all four letters. Do you know why? Because it's the name, the personal name of God. And they capitalized every letter. It's the word Yahweh, or that comes from the root I am. And then he adds the word Almighty. The word Almighty translates in Hebrew Sabaoth, which literally means the armies of earth and heaven. Some versions, I know the King James translates it Lord of hosts. This is a very strong statement. It has a military term. The God of all the armies of earth and heaven. This description denotes an unbeatable foe. An all-powerful being with an unlimited army at his beck and call. A sovereign God with all the power of heaven and earth. Who can stand against him? Nobody. It reminds me of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he adds in verse 5, According to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt, now listen to this, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. God says, the Almighty God, the All-Powerful One, the Lord of all the armies of heaven and earth, I was with you then, and I am still with you today. Should not that encourage each one of us? This Almighty God of heaven and earth, the All-Powerful One, the One who sees all things, knows all things, the One who has never thwarted, everything He wills comes to pass. All people, all kings, all empires are in His hands. He speaks the world into existence. This God was with them and He is with us right now. God was encouraging them by reminding them that not only was He with their forefathers in the past, He's still with them today. And you can think about that in the context of us today. How much more do we enjoy God's presence? His Spirit dwells us, each one, in our hearts. He lives with inside of us. And we need to remember what God has done in the past so that we have a proper perspective of the past. But we also need to not forget that He is with us today. He's not left us to fend for ourselves. He's on our side. If we are discouraged, we have an improper perspective. That means we are not in alignment with God or His work. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to always see the big picture. We just have to acknowledge that He knows what's best. And He is powerful enough to accomplish it. He doesn't just appeal to their past and to the present, though. He also appeals to their future. Let me read verses 6 six through 9 again. Chapter 2, verses 6, he begins, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land 
And I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Here in these verses, Haggai, prophetically speaking, points them to the future. This was not the easiest section, I have to be honest, to definitively understand. In fact, after studying it myself, I turned to some commentaries to help me and I got more confused. <laughs> so I had to put it aside and coming back to it and re-looking at it. But I think I can safely say that the point of this passage of Scripture was to get the people off of the short-term focus and get it on to the bigger picture. And there's a lot of ways one could view this shaking of the nation. Some would pick out some coming events in the life of the people of Judah some would look forward to the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of that point to his resurrection and the earthquake that happened while he was on the cross. Others point to the millennial kingdom. Some point to the final return of Christ. But as always, Scripture to me is the best interpreter of Scriptures. And I actually came across a passage of Scripture in Hebrews that actually quotes this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I think as you read that in context of Hebrews, this shaking is not just of the earth. It says it's but of heaven and earth. I think it's a shaking of judgment until only what is eternal is left standing. This is the final shaking. When everything physical will not stand. Only what eternal will survive. This is a prophetic comparison, I think, of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Those Jews who ignored the Old Covenant did not enter into the Promised Land. Those who refuse God's New Covenant are not going to survive this future shaking. But back in Haggai verse 7, the Lord says He will shake the nations so that some versions say the desire of all nations, some say the treasure of all nations will come in. Sometimes the word used here is translated either desire or treasure. Some people think that when you're looking at the desire of all nations, some commentators said that they thought that was Jesus. It might be, but I don't see it that way. In fact, the desire of all nations would probably more likely be the Antichrist than it would be Jesus. I don't think all the nations desire Jesus. But when it's interpreted treasure, it fits more in line with the next verse. It talks about the silver is mine, the gold is mine. I think that clarifies that, that he's talking about the physical thing. I think he's telling them everything. All gold, all silver, every treasure you can think of is mine. If I wanted the temple to be adorned with treasures, I would have provided it. And in the future glory, that's going to happen. That's going to be there. I own it all. It's all mine in the end. The temple will eventually display all of that. My glory is going to be there. The beauty you envision will be there. In fact, it will be more beautiful than anything you can imagine. So as I went through this, prophetic verses are not always 
completely easy to understand. I think it could be speaking to different points in history. It could even be pointing to multiple points in history. Many times in Scripture there are dual fulfillments where you have a partial fulfillment and a later fulfillment. It could be that. But I don't want to get caught up on the interpretation so much as that we miss the application. Even if we don't completely understand these verses, we can draw some important truths from them. One is that there awaits for us in the future a future that is so beyond anything that we can dream of. The temple of the future is far more beautiful than anything that they can imagine. Now they can't always see what God is doing. We can't always see what God is doing. We want to see the results. And they need to be what we want them to be. God's so much bigger than us. His ways are not our ways, the Bible says. If we could grasp that, I think we would be less discouraged at times because we would know and trust that God is doing something in our lives even if we don't see it right now. If we have the proper perspective of the future, we would not be discouraged. God is working out His plan for the world according to His will and His desires. We need to view ourselves and our circumstances in light of that because each one of us is a part of God's plan for the future. J. Vernon McGee tells a story about an Irish preacher who turned in his resignation at the end of the year. When the elders asked him why, he said, because we haven't had any conversions this entire year except we, Bobby Moffat. The writer went on to say that the discouraged preacher couldn't see that the we, Bobby Moffat, would become Robert Moffat, the great missionary to Africa, who probably did more to open Africa to missions than David Livingston, his son-in-law. That's who we all remember. That year, what the preacher considered a failure was probably the greatest year of his ministry. We all need to see things in light of God's plan and purpose for our lives, not ours. God has a plan for each of us, no matter how insignificant it seems. We don't see the big picture. Our purpose in this life may boil down to witnessing or sharing the gospel with one nurse during an illness. It may be serving behind the scenes in a way that never gets recognized. But who better to receive recognition from but than the Lord? We may, through our testimony and example, as we go through hardship, be an encouragement to someone in a way that we'll never know until we get to heaven. But remember, God has a plan for the future, and we have a part in it. So in conclusion, when we are discouraged, God says to us, be strong, get to work, put your past, your present, and your future into the right perspective. And don't look at it with your desires and views, but God's desire and view. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for bringing us your word today. If there's anyone here today who has been experiencing a discouraging time in their life recently or been depressed, Father, may your word speak to them. May you help each of us to to be strong, to, to fight our attitudes and wrong ideas and thoughts, and Father, and not to succumb to them, but to be courageous and to fight and to get busy doing what you would have us to do and help us all of us, to always have a biblical perspective of life, of our past, of our present, and 
especially of our future, knowing that whatever's going on in our life, that it's going to pass and that we're going to be in eternity in, a, in, a, in just a situation that our minds cannot even comprehend the glory and the, the joy that we will experience on that day. And Father, we ask this in Your Son's name. Amen.